Um, but what a blessing that we are able to come to an end and see God's faithfulness in carrying us all the way through this book. Let's stand together and let's read this word together. First Peter chapter 5, and I will read for us from verse 6 to 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Uh, this is a wonderful passage. It's a passage of Scripture that reminds us that as the people of God, we need to regularly humble ourselves before God. And notice that he's called the God of all grace. So we have every reason to humble ourselves before this good and gracious God. But sometimes it's difficult for us to humble ourselves before God, isn't it? I think that's particularly true in cases of suffering. I think sometimes when we're suffering, it can be very hard for us to want to humble ourselves before God. Let me give you an example of that from my own life. So in 2010, uh, my wife and I were living in North Carolina, Wake Forest, North Carolina. I was a new student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, we had just uh, spent two years overseas in Central Asia. We were just transitioning back to the United States, and it had been a very difficult transition. When we moved to North Carolina, the 2008 recession was still really impacting the local economy. Uh, I looked for months before I was able to find a full-time job, and after I found a full-time job and got my first paycheck, I realized that I was not going to be able to pay the bills for my family, and so we kind of watched all of our savings just kind of be drained away little by little by little, and then I got sick, and not just a little sick. I got colds, and then I got a sinus infection, and then I got ear infections, over the course of about four weeks, and it didn't matter what I tried to do, I could not get well. I went to work sick. I worked the whole shift. I was sick. I came home sick. I went to class sick. I went to bed sick. I woke up sick, and that continued on day after day, week after week, and it just seemed to get worse. So one night, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning, and I literally could not sleep. I was having difficulty even being able to breathe because the congestion was so bad. So I went to the kitchen in order to get medicine to help me get through the night, only to realize that we had run out of cold medicine. Now, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. What am I going to do? I decide I'm going to get in my car and go to the store at 2 o'clock in the morning, even though I had to be at work the next morning, and uh, went to the store, bought medicine. And then I came back, and I parked. And right when I parked in front of our apartment there, I realized that I had lost my wallet. And I completely lost it. I just started yelling and shouting. I started yelling at God. I started asking God, what do you want from me? You know, I'm here in seminary because I want to serve you. 
I can't even provide for my own family. You won't even let me get well. What did I do to deserve this? And I yelled, and I screamed, and I shouted for a long time. My pride got the best of me, and in the moment, I thought I knew better than God. And so instead of humbling myself before God, I exalted myself. And I started to yell at him. In other words, I did completely the opposite from what our passage for study this morning calls us to do. Look at verse 6 again. Notice how Peter begins. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. In my suffering, I did not humble myself. Instead, in pride, I decided I knew better than God how he should be ruling the universe. And so I accused him of doing wrong. And sometimes when we're suffering, we can actually fall into the same trap. We can assume that we know better than God, and we can call him out, as it were. We can doubt his goodness. We can begin to believe that he doesn't care for us. We can become angry, and so we can sin against God. And that's why this passage is so important for us to study and understand what it teaches us here. It's such a valuable passage, because here we're given wisdom on what it looks like to humble ourselves before God. What does that look like practically in our lives? We're encouraged to cast all of our cares on him. And we're reminded that he does care for us. You know, our circumstances lie to us about God. But God's word reminds us that God does care for us, even though we are in the midst of suffering. And so we're helped to live a life that brings glory to him, even in the midst of our suffering. It's an important passage of scripture. So we're concluding this, uh, this letter of 1 Peter for the past several months. We've really been feasting on the truth of God's word. I mean, this, it's so dense in terms of just rich truths about God and about how we're supposed to live for him. Peter's reminded us of the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading hope we have because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have a hope that's strong that cannot be taken from us in this life. We've been reminded to live as the holy people of God. Uh, we've been reminded of our identity. This is, you know, in terms of things I took away from studying, this is one of the big things. Again, the New Testament tells us we must realize who we are in Christ. And then the New Testament tells us to live like who we are in Christ. And we are holy in Christ, so we must live that way. Peter's taught us how to relate to the government that we live under. He's taught us how we're supposed to relate to one another in our homes, husbands and wives together. Uh, He's taught us how we're supposed to relate to one another in the local church, how we're supposed to care for one another in the context of the local church, and he has taught us a lot about suffering and about how to endure suffering well, about how to think about suffering rightly so we can respond rightly to our suffering. Last week, we looked at Peter's instruction for the elders of the church, uh, how they're supposed to shepherd the flock that's been entrusted to them by the chief shepherd, and we also thought together about how all of the members of the congregation should be responding to the elders that the Lord has placed over them. Now, we're looking at really final instructions this morning. There's a lot here. Uh, He covers a lot of topics. He gives a lot of commands. Uh, He addresses the humility, spiritual warfare, hope, faithfulness, and love that should characterize the life of a Christian. He really just gives us another beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. There is a lot here. We're not going to be able to say everything that we could say from this passage this morning, but we're going to, in the time we have together, seek to work through this passage by using five commands, five commands that you see kind of flow out of this passage. So if you're taking notes, uh, five commands from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 14, we're going to see first that we need to be humble. 
We'll see that in verses 6 and 7. Then we're going to see that we need to be alert. We'll see that in verse 8. Then we're going to see that we need to be fighting. So there's spiritual warfare in the Christian life. We'll see that in verses 9 to 11. Then we're going to see that we need to be faithful. We'll see that in verse 12. And then we're going to see that we need to be loving. We'll see that in verses 13 and 14. And of course, you'll be able to follow along because that's a lot. The first command, be humble. Look with me if you watch your copy of God's word. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. Here's what God commands us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Now, those are some really sweet verses. I'm sure many of you have those memorized. But notice the command that God gives us here. The command is to humble yourself. And really, Peter's talking to these early believers who were experiencing persecution, and his command to them is, humble yourselves. Now, why did they need to humble themselves? Well, if you look at verse 5, we've been reminded that God is a God who gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And these believers needed God's grace. They needed God. They were being persecuted. They were suffering. They needed God's grace, and so they needed to humble themselves before God so that he would give them the grace that they need. And what would that humbling of themselves look like? Well, most especially, it would look like this. It would look like receiving what God was permitting in their lives without railing against God, without becoming angry, without doubting his character, without sinning in their behavior. They were to submit themselves to God's will in faith, trusting that God is good. Now, did you notice that Peter said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? This is something you have to understand as a Christian. If you're going to understand your experience rightly, yes, suffering comes into our lives. Other people bring suffering into our lives. We do get sick at times. Bad things do happen at times. But over and above all of that, you have a sovereign God who's permitting it. See, God is ultimately the one that's over the suffering that enters our lives. It's his mighty hand, as it were, that's kind of pressing down on us because he has a work to do within us, and our response needs to be one of trust, one of humility. Uh, instead of proudly grumbling and complaining and assuming that we know better than God what we should be experiencing in our lives, the right response is to humble ourselves and to be happy in his will. That is the secret of always being happy as a believer. You just, you're happy because this is God's will, and he's good. We need to acknowledge that his will is best. We need to humble our hearts. We need to patiently endure the suffering. But I want you to notice that, that patiently enduring the suffering has nothing to do with kind of a, a hopeless resignation, right? Kind of this fatalistic outlook. Well, God has determined that this is going to happen, and I'm going to suffer, so there's nothing I can do but just kind of go through the suffering because, after all, God's the one who's doing it. Do you notice? No, it's not to be like that at all. Instead, the way we humble ourselves is actually a, it's a hopeful thing because in the midst of humbling ourselves before God, we're looking ahead to God to do something. Did you notice that in the second part of verse 6, Peter writes, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So we're humbling ourselves because we're looking ahead in faith to God to do something for us. We're looking for God to bring us through the suffering and indeed to exalt us at the proper time. God's the only one that can do that. We're trusting him to do that, and we're trusting him to do it at the proper time. And friends, God's the one that knows what the proper time is. 
Now, in our lives, we will experience seasons where we'll go through kind of intense suffering, and God will bring us past that suffering, and then we might even experience his blessing in a newer and a fuller way, just kind of a taste of that exaltation. That happens in the life of a believer. But most especially, when Peter says, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, he's actually thinking about the great and final day when Christ returns. He's thinking about the reality that one day, all the suffering will be over. Christ is going to come back and present himself as a glorious king. Christians are going to be shown to be wise and not foolish for following him. Yeah, in all of our humiliation, all of our suffering, all of our tears will be done on that day. That's the day Peter's calling us to look ahead to and know that God is the one who can exalt us at that time. So exaltation is coming. We need to know that because when you're suffering, if you're not careful, you can become hopeless. But no, the Bible says you look ahead, you look by faith past your suffering, you look ahead to a great and glorious day that is sure to come, and you trust in God. So we humble ourselves before God, even in the midst of suffering. Now, Peter gives us an example of what this looks like, or, or one of the ways that this looks in the life of a believer. Look at verse 7. He says, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Now, Peter here, he's probably thinking of Psalm 55, 22, which John Coker read for us earlier in the service, where the psalmist encourages us to kind of cast our burdens on the Lord. I mean, we have weights that are frankly just too big for us. What are we supposed to do? We're not supposed to hold them. We're supposed to give our burdens to God. That's what he commands us to do. So again, humbling ourselves before God is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. I am to acknowledge God's will, but I'm not supposed to stop there. I'm actually supposed to take the cares and the suffering, and I'm supposed to give it to God. Now, the word cares there, it speaks really of anxiety. It speaks of fear. It speaks of worry. You know, cares are really anything that weigh us down, that burden our hearts. Those are what cares are, those fears, those anxieties, those worries that they just kind of consume us. For the early Christians, Peter was writing to in this letter, uh, those cares would have included losing their social status in the community uh, or, or losing their families who no longer wanted anything to do with them because now they were following Jesus or losing their job or perhaps even losing their life for following Jesus. Those would have been the cares and concerns that would have been weighing them down in their context. What were they to do with those cares? They were to cast them on God, uh, throw it upon him. Let his shoulders be broad. He's the one that's strong enough to carry them. I'm going to give my burdens to God, and here's the trick. I'm going to leave them there. I'm not going to pick them back up again. As we do this, we humble ourselves before God. We give our cares to him, and we acknowledge that, that you're great, and I'm not. You're strong, and I'm not. I need you to help me through this season of suffering in my life. As we do that, God is honored and we are helped, right? His strength is at work in our lives to, to just kind of hold us up in the midst of the suffering so that we are not overwhelmed, so that we are cast down, but we are not destroyed. Why should we cast our cares on God? Peter tells us at the end of verse 7, look at this. This is so important because he cares for you, right? Is there anything more comforting than knowing that the God of eternity cares for you, uh, brother, sister, that he knows you by name? 
that he knows how many hairs are on your head right now, that he is acquainted with all of your ways, that he's watching over all your steps, that he's made good promises to you, that he's going to faithfully bring you home, that nothing, not even all of hell, can keep you from entering the glory of heaven because God cares for you. There's nothing more glorious than that. It's an amazing reality. And so we can cast all of our cares on him because he does care for us. Now let me make one observation and one application before we move on. When we suffer, pride will cause us to doubt God, but humility will allow us to cast our cares on him. Pride makes us think we know better than God, right? Suffering comes into our lives and we don't like it and we assume that God's made a mistake, Surely this can't be right. This doesn't line up with my plans for my life, and I think I have a pretty good idea of what would be good for me, but God's not doing that. Something's wrong. Maybe God's angry with me. Maybe God doesn't care for me. Maybe God's ignorant of what's happening in my life, and we start to question his goodness and his wisdom, and we say, why are you doing this to me, and what did I do to deserve this? You know, just like I said in my car that night in seminary, that's what pride does. It, you know, pride sets us against God, right? But humility, humility brings us to God. Uh, it allows us to humble our hearts before him. We say, we say, you know, God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than mine. Uh, frankly, he's smarter than I am. I don't know how this fits together, but God knows how this fits together. And in his time, he can bring me through this. So I'm going to rest my soul in him. I'm going to trust him in the midst of this trial. Brother and sister, this is something that takes um, a lot of trials that you have to go through before you learn this. This is something that God teaches us little by little as we walk with him. But as we humble ourselves, we are helped to embrace God's will and to endure suffering in a way that brings honor to him. And we find rest in him. Now, there's an application we should make. We should avoid the temptation to judge God by our circumstances, right? Our circumstances, they shout at us. This is what's true. Things are bad. This hurts. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't know what's going on in your life right now. So we can get angry or we can believe that he's angry or we can say that the end of verse seven actually isn't true after all. Apparently God doesn't care for me because he's permitting me to suffer in this way. God can't be good. Look at my circumstances. But you know, the Bible tells us we cannot judge God by our circumstances. Instead, we need to trust his character as his character is revealed in God's word. Right, we're looking to God's hands in the sense of what is God bringing into my life? I'm gonna judge him by that. But no, the Bible says you have to understand God's heart. You have to know that God cares for you. There's a, a hymn that says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a, a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, and we need to remember that. Yes, God permits hard things into our lives. Uh, he was permitting the Christians to whom Peter was writing to suffer and to suffer intense persecution. But that doesn't mean that God isn't good. Uh, it just means that his smile has been hidden for a moment. You know, the sun is always shining, even when the storm clouds go in front of it and we can't see the sun anymore. The sun is always shining. And God is always good, and he always cares for his children, even when he permits us to suffer. So instead of judging God by our circumstances, we need to listen to God's word. And what does God's word say? Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. In other words, God's not far from us in our pain. God is not ignorant of our suffering. He is well acquainted with what's happening 
and he cares. And he cares. Such good news. And friend, listen, if you don't rest in God, where are you going to find rest? Does food really give you rest? Does mindless entertainment really give you rest? Does working yourself to death, does that really give you rest? Look, if we aren't going to trust our souls to God, we're going to try to rest somewhere. The problem is, nowhere else is a solid foundation. There's no other source of rest. So God says, don't run foolishly away from me. Run to me in the midst of your suffering, and I will give you rest. He says he can give us peace that surpasses understanding, and many of us, by his grace, have experienced that. So we see in verse 6 and 7 that we're supposed to be humble. There's a second command, be alert. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. The, the word sober-minded there, it actually speaks of not being drunk. And the idea is there's supposed to be a spiritual sobriety, supposed to be a, a, a clear-mindedness of thought and intentionality, kind of a controlled state of mind. And be alert there really speaks of watchfulness. Uh, it talks about being on guard, and you put those two commands together, and you see that the, the Christian life is supposed to be characterized by a, a sober-mindedness, by a watchfulness, by an alertness, by clear thinking. That's what our lives are supposed to look like. Now, why? Why, why should it look that way? Well, Peter tells us. He goes on, he says, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. In other words, Satan is real. We will not understand our uh, circumstances in the Christian life if we think of Satan as a myth or if we just ignore him. If we forget that actually Satan and his demons are working together to hinder the sons and daughters of God from living for God, we will not understand our experience. But Peter's saying, actually, no, Satan is real and he's like a lion. And what are lions like? Well, they're fierce animals, uh, they are apex predators, they're really good at killing things. And he says, that's what Satan's like. He's really good at devouring souls. You, you need to be on guard. Now, now, Christians, because they're guarded by God for salvation, uh, Satan cannot devour our souls. But that doesn't mean that Satan can't hurt us. It doesn't mean that Satan can't hinder us in this life. We need to be on guard. We need to be watchful. What happens when we're not watchful against Satan? Well, we see that in Adam and Eve. What happened to Adam and Eve when they were not watchful? Satan comes in with his temptation, and paradise is lost. Peter was not watchful on the night that Jesus was betrayed. What happened? Satan came in with his temptation, and Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times. Peter's telling us, as one who's experienced what it's like to be sifted by Satan, he's telling us that Satan can sift us as well. Satan's not sitting back wondering if he's smart enough to trip us up. Uh, he's smart enough to trip us up. Uh, he's just looking for an opportunity. He's looking for us to lower the guard, to not be watchful. He's looking for us to just kind of wander away from the chief shepherd a little bit. And when the time comes, he will pounce. And that can look very, very serious. Just think of the Old Testament. I mean, think of how many great men of God that Satan overcame. Think of Moses in the wilderness, right? He's doing so well leading all of the people. But then the Lord says, speak to the rock. And what does Moses do? He's overcome by the temptation to pride and anger. And so he strikes the rock and he loses out on the ability to enter the promised land as a result of his sin. And think of David. David was overcome with lust, right? He's on his uh, rooftop and he looks and he sees this woman and he commits adultery with her. And then he ends up murdering her husband in order to hide his sin. 
And then what happened? He's confronted for that sin that he's overcome by, uh, and his family life from that point on is utterly destroyed as a result of his sin. Elijah's overcome with fear when he's threatened by Jezebel. Now, the day before, he had just uh, overcome 850 false prophets. But now the next day, Jezebel comes and says, I'm going to make you like one of those dead prophets. And what happens? He's overcome with fear, and he runs away in shame. These were great men. If they could be overcome, we can be overcome. And so Peter says, be watchful. Uh, The reality is, if we're not watchful, we will be overcome. So that's why he gives us this command. Satan is cunning. He is strong. We must be watchful. So let me ask you, uh, how are you doing at being watchful? Brother, sister, are you spending time daily in God's word? I mean, it's just we, we, we will do this so regularly because there's just, in terms of shepherding, there's no more helpful thing I can say than, than feed on God's word and do it every single day. And, and don't let anything, don't let any excuse get in your way. We're all busy. But make time to feed spiritually on Christ. Uh, Pray. Spend time with the Lord. If you're not, here's what happens. Your heart grows cold. Satan will give you 1,500 good reasons why you should do this later. But the problem is is that we grow sleepy and spiritually weak. And then what happens? Satan, well, he's a a prowling lion. Well, friend, if if you're struggling with your quiet times, we just want you to understand that you're not alone in that. But don't stay alone in that. Come and seek help. Look for mentorship from an older brother or sister who can walk with you through what it would look like for you to organize your life so that you're being alert and watchful and spending time with the Lord. Are you giving your eyes and ears to things that dishonor God, or are you guarding them? I do think this is a big issue. Uh, If we're not careful, we can come up with reasons why we should be watching television programs and movies that are filled with sex and filled with cursing, and we think that we're doing something good. I mean, this is art, right? This is fine art, so I should be watching this because this is fine art. Uh, We need to be watchful. Uh, Can you really really fill your heart with all of those images and all of those words and not be affected by it? You can't. It's like slowly poisoning yourself. And your spiritual, your spiritual strength is going to be sapped by that. And so the Bible says, be watchful. Turn away from that. Walk in purity. Walk in holiness. We must be watchful. Satan is prowling like a lion. Are you watching over your heart and confessing and repenting of sin quickly? Or have you grown uh, unwatchful? And are there little, seed, little seeds of sin you know, growing up like little weeds in your life? And it's not such a big deal because those are, those are small sins. Friend, the only one that wants you to think of your sin as small is Satan. God wants you to understand the deadliness of sin. Satan wants you to think of sin as a small thing. Be watchful. Repent. Turn away from that quickly. This is what we're called to. We're called to be on the alert and on guard against Satan because he's a real enemy. There's a third command. We must be fighting. Look, if you will, at verses 9 to 11. And we're going to begin by just reading the first part of verse 9. What does it say there? Resist him firm in the faith. So here we see we have to do something more than be watchful. Being watchful is utterly necessary, but it's not enough. There's actually more that we need to do. We must fight. 
This is spiritual warfare. The command to resist him really means to stand against him. The idea is that we are to take the fight to the enemy. We're not supposed to be passive in the Christian life. We're supposed to be active. We're supposed to be on offense in the Christian life. We're supposed to be uh, battling against Satan. How are we to do that? Peter says this. He says, firm in the faith. And the faith is, is the, the revealed uh, scripture. This is God's word. This is the truth that he's given us. We must be firm in what God has said because Satan is going to come with his lies. We need to be firm so that we can answer the lies of Satan, so that we can stand firm on the truth of God's word. What does it look like to fight against Satan? Well, Peter doesn't really flesh it out. He just tells us that we must be doing it. But Terry, earlier for us, read a, a passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, that give us a really good picture of what spiritual warfare looks like, really fleshes that out. Now, we're not going to take the time to read that passage again, but it does look like putting on the full armor of God, which means we must hold to, we must cling to the righteousness, the readiness to preach the gospel, the faith, the salvation, the truth, that has been given to us in Jesus. It's like we need to put that on like armor. And then, did you notice that having stood with the armor, we must pray, and we must pray fervently, and we must pray for ourselves, and not only for ourselves, but when you look at verse 19 and 20, he says, now also pray for me that I can share the gospel as I should. So we must pray for others. Why? Because the church is not a Ruritan club. The church does not exist to come together and enjoy being together. It's not a nice social organization where you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back and, hey, let's get, to, you know, let's get ahead in business and isn't it great that we can be friends and I like being here and I'm comfortable with you and you're comfortable with me and let's not really rock the boat. That's not what a church is. Uh, this is an embassy of heaven, right? This is where the people of God are in the world. Uh, this is also kind of the front lines of spiritual warfare, and God intends for us to push out that way, and that way, and that way, and that way, reaching out to the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must fight, and we must pray. We must be active in that, helping one another follow Jesus, and helping those who do not know Jesus come to know him. Now, if you walked with the Lord for any period of time, you know that this is difficult. Spiritual warfare is difficult. Uh, we have the world fighting against us. We have Satan fighting against us. And we have in our own hearts the flesh, right? We have the flesh within that is kind of dragging us back from, from fighting hard. And yet, and yet, the Bible doesn't leave us without encouragement. That's what Peter does in verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. Here's this first piece of encouragement. Second part of verse 9, Peter reminds us that we are not alone in the fight. He says, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So facing persecution, these first century uh, believers in Asia Minor, they could have felt like they were the only ones living through this. And no one else knows what it's like for us to suffer, but Peter says it's not the way, that's not how it is. Your brothers and sisters all around the world, everyone who's following Christ, they're likewise involved in this same struggle. In other words, you are not alone. We're not alone. And it's true for us. We're not alone. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are involved in the exact same struggle. And that's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for me this week to think about the fact that I need to be actively praying for brothers and sisters in other nations. You know, we do that during our pastoral prayer regularly here, but that needs to really be a discipline that we are growing in as a church really throughout the week, praying for God's people everywhere. We also need to be praying for one another. 
Because, you know, for me, I can feel like, man, it's a tough week, and I can just be brought into myself and focused on myself, and I, forget, I can forget that you likewise are involved in spiritual warfare. Everyone who gathers here, everyone who truly belongs to the Lord is involved in spiritual warfare. So we're not alone. We're not alone in this. John Coker's in the fight. He's fighting every single day. Brooklyn Gilliam is in the fight, and Tracy Yang is in the fight, and Jonathan Clayton is in the fight. We're not alone, but we do need each other, and we do need to encourage each other. So we need to be encouraged by the fact that we're not alone, and we need to be encouraging one another as we continue to exercise this spiritual warfare. So who knows the way you're struggling? Who knows the ways that you're struggling and fighting? Who's praying for you? You know, you have to be willing to share your struggles so that others can pray for you. And who are you praying for? Whose burdens are you bearing? Who are you fighting alongside? Who are you locking shields with as you move forward together and fight? So important. In verse 10, Peter encourages us a second way by reminding us of the hope we have in Christ. Look, he says, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. I love this. Here he reminds us that the sufferings of this life, though they are heavy, intense, and fierce at times, they're short in comparison with eternal glory. In comparison with eternity, it's, it's short, right? After a short time, what's he going to do? The God of all grace. So God's grace is sufficient, right? You see that all grace, I love that. It's sufficient for every single trial that we'll experience during this short time of suffering. What's he going to do when the suffering is over? Well, he's going to restore us. He's going to confirm us. He's going to establish and strengthen and support us. In other words, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to bind up every wound. And he's going to welcome us into an, a glorious eternity where we'll be established on him in a perfect world forever and ever and ever. So it makes perfect sense that Peter concludes this section the way he does. Notice in verse 11, what does he do? He gives a doxology of praise to God. To him be the dominion. To God be the dominion, the authority, the rule, right? First century Roman Christians are looking around. They think Rome has the dominion. No, Peter says God has the dominion. And to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we must fight, and we have all the encouragement we need to fight well. There's a fourth command, verse 12, be faithful. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, Faithful is one of my favorite characters in the Pilgrim's Progress. He walks along with Christian on the way to the celestial city. They encourage one another as they go, but then, you know, they get to Vanity Fair and what happens? They're arrested. And Faithful is accused and Faithful is uh, consigned to death. But what does he do? He faithfully holds fast to the truth of God's word, even unto death. Uh, He lived up to his name. He was faithful. And that's what we're called to here in verse 12. In verse 12, Peter, Peter begins really his closing words. I mean, these are, these are the final words of the letter here from 12 to verse 14. And he says, uh, through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written you briefly. What does he do? He gives us an example of faithfulness. Do you notice that he points to Silvanus and he says, here's a faithful brother. Gives us an example to follow. Silvanus is another name for Silas. Uh, Silas was the brother who went with Paul on the second missionary journey. And more than a decade later, what is Silvanus doing? 
Well, now he's faithfully serving alongside Peter, and he's the one who carried this letter to these churches. It was his job was to be a courier at this point. He is a great reminder, Silvanus is a great reminder, to pray that we would be faithful to Christ not only at the beginning of the Christian life, but we would be faithful to Christ for decades, that we would walk with God all throughout our lives. And how will we remain faithful? We will only remain faithful if we cling to the truth of God's word. That's what Peter goes on to tell us. Second part of verse 12, he says, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What is the this that is the true grace of God? What's he referring to by that word this? He's really talking about the entire letter. Uh, He's talking about all of the exhortations and admonitions and commands. He's talking about this picture of a grace-filled Christian life. And he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in this. Do not get distracted. Do not move away from this. This is the grace of God. This is what it means to be a believer. In other words, we are to stand firm on the truth of God's word. And as we stand firm on the truth of God's word, we will be enabled to be faithful. Let me give you a word of encouragement. It is a blessing for me as a still mostly young pastor to be able to look across the congregation and see some of our older saints who've been walking with God for 40 and 50 and 60 years. Brothers and sisters, you are a picture of faithfulness for us. Uh, You're an example for us in the way that God has helped you and persevered you and you have stood firm on the truth of God's word. How did you get there? How did you get there? Well, you clung to the Bible. Other people told you the Bible wasn't very important. Uh, They said, yeah, yeah, it's okay, but it's fine. It's not the most important thing. You didn't believe it. You built your life on God's word. You built your life on the foundation of Christ. And that's the only reason why you're still standing 40, 50, or 60 years later. So praise God for your faithfulness. And thank you for your faithfulness. And press on. You can get tripped up at the end of your life. You can waste the rest of your life. Don't do that. By God's grace, press on in serving the Lord. And may those of us who are younger, may we be able to follow you uh, and follow your example as you continue to follow Christ. Well, before we move on, let me draw your attention to that word grace there. He says, this is the true grace of God. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about this, this Christian life that he has painted for us, these truths of God's word, and he calls it the grace of God. It's such a good remember. Uh, such a good reminder that grace is at the very center of Christianity, right? This is at the very heart of it. Uh, Really, at the very heart of Christianity is this gospel, and the gospel is a gospel of grace. We were born sinful and separated from God. No one here deserves God's salvation. We were born separated from him. We didn't want to live for him. We wanted to live for ourselves. What looked good to us was to live for me and what I wanted to do. And so I ignored God's word. I ignored his commands. You've done the same thing. We have all sinned against others. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that God is holy. The Bible says we are not holy. There is no way we can be good enough for God. There's no way that we can earn heaven. That's the bad news. But then there's good news. And the good news is that God is a God of grace. And grace is undeserved favor. And that's at the heart of Christianity, that God the Father sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to live a perfect life. He was full of what? He was full of grace and truth. He was living the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. And then he laid down his life on the cross. It's a courageous act. It's a sacrificial act. It's a loving act. It was a purposeful act because Jesus came to die. 
And on the cross, he stretches out his arms and he is crucified in a shameful way. He dies, but then he rises from the dead, showing that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice. What happened on the cross? He was bearing in himself the wrath of God against our sins, brothers and sisters. He was paying for my sins. If you're in Christ, he's paying for your sins. Uh, He's making a way for all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. That's what he was doing. And now salvation is this glorious free gift. Friend, you can't earn it. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. You can receive it as a gift. And that looks like turning from your sins and putting your trust in Christ and Christ alone. And God will wash away all of your sins and he will clothe you, as it were, with the perfect righteousness of Christ You'll be a son or daughter of God. There's no greater blessing. There's no greater joy than to know the God who created you. He is good, and he calls to you to trust in him. So will you? Will you trust in him today? Oh, so many people come to church, and they just put up this stiff arm week after week after week after week, little knowing that the day may come that they hear the gospel for the last time. And then there will be no other chance. Oh, friend, trust in Christ today. Put your hope in him now. He's a good God, and he will rescue you. Here's a final command this morning for us. Be loving. Look at verse 13 and 14. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's a lot here, but there are, uh, in particular, two expressions of love that I want us just to kind of focus on. In verse 13, we see an expression of love from one local church to other local churches. That's what Peter means when he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Babylon was kind of a, a code word for Rome. Babylon was the capital city of that ancient evil empire that took the people of God into exile. Remember that we are strangers and foreigners, Peter told us. Where? Well, in the first century, they're under Rome, which is the capital of this evil empire in which these believers find themselves. Babylon, again, is kind of a code name for Rome. She, who is in Babylon, is speaking of the church in Babylon. Peter's a part of the church in, or excuse me, the church in Rome. Peter's a part of the church in Rome. And what does the church in Rome do? She greets the other churches to whom Peter is writing. In other words, she knows about them and she cares about them. And she's sending greetings to them. This is love and concern from one local church to other local churches. And in the New Testament, if you study, you'll see that this is very common. It's very common for local churches to know and care about and pray for and serve other local churches. You see that in Acts 8, the church in Jerusalem. They help the church in Samaria spiritually by sending uh, Peter and sending John to them. And then the churches in Greece, what do they do later on? Uh, They help the church in Jerusalem financially. How? They gather together a gift of money because the church in Jerusalem is suffering in a famine. What are they doing? They're sending the money to this other local church because they know them and love them and they care for them. It is a beautiful picture of what it should be to be a local church. We should care for other churches. We should greet them, if you will. We should love them. We should serve them. And I'm grateful, Christ Fellowship, that you have a heart for this. Boy, do we want to be a blessed church? Let's just pour ourselves out for the, for the Lord's bride. Let's look for opportunities to bless other local churches. Thank you for the way you're doing this. We're financially supporting a church plant this year, River City Baptist Church. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do more than send money. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to go and bless and encourage them in in tangible ways as well, in personal ways as well. We have a line item called Blessing Other Churches. 
We've been able to bless two other churches this year with those monies that we set aside. I'm praying that we'll be able to set aside more money and have more opportunities to bless other churches in the days ahead. We will not regret one thing we do for Christ's bride. We won't. And Christ Fellowship, you need to know that you are known by other churches in this area, and they pray for you by name on Sundays. This kind of thing is happening, and may it happen more and more in Hampton Roads. In verse 14, we see Peter encourage expressions of love within the local church itself as well. So this is within the church. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, and a kind of a kiss on the cheek was a normal expression of greeting in the first century. Uh, it's still a normal expression of greeting in many parts of the world today. But what is Peter doing? He's encouraging these believers to be open and expressive about their love for one another. To let other people, you love other people, let other people know that you love them. Greet one another with a kiss of love, you know, regardless of how we greet one another, right? Even though it's different in our culture, we're not kissing each other on the cheeks usually. Uh, we need to be open and we need to be expressive of the fact that we care for one another. Uh, that's the point he's making, right? Many of us miss, have missed this, right? Over the last two years, COVID has made this more challenging, right? We've had to be a little less personal, and that can be a difficult thing, and we understand those concerns. But even if we can't be as expressive as we want to be, we still need to be expressive. And perhaps we need to be more expressive with our words if we're limited in being able to express love and affection in other ways. You know, perhaps we need to be more open with saying things like, I love you and I'm praying for you, and I care about you. Those kind of things need to be, they need to be things that we are regularly encouraging one another with. So today we've, we've seen these five final commands uh, helping us live a Christian life. He says that we are to be humble, be alert, be fighting, be faithful, be loving. Brothers and sisters, this is what a grace-filled life looks like. And by God's grace, we've come to the end of this book. It's a good letter, right? It's a good letter, right? It shows us what a grace-filled Christian life looks like, and then it says, stand firm here. By God's grace, live like this. And God can help us do this. May he help us do this. And, and as Peter prays at the end of verse 14, may God give his peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.